funny noises and say funny things do the noises need to come out of my mouth no that is not a prerequisite they just have to be funny that's right funny noises they don't have to be word shaped no all right come that's on detective a lot to baby. work with come on detective baby powder <laughs> make me laugh monkey detective baby powder <laughs> So when are we going to tell our listeners about um, Jimmy Lanigan? Never. <laughs> Jimmy Lanigan. Jimmy Lanigan will never come up. Oh, come on. I think the world needs to know about Jimmy Lanigan. Listen, there are secrets that Jimmy Lanigan holds. <laughs> Deep, dark secrets that he doesn't want other people to know about. <laughs> Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. I'm Liz. I'm Chad. And we're in episode 45. In episode 45, we will be covering chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Red Seas Under Red Skies by Scott Lynch. This is book two of the Gentleman Bastard series. Yes, it is. So if you're joining us and haven't read book one yet, stop, drop. Go back and read that one first. That's right. Absolutely. Next book club, we are going to be covering chapters eight through chapter 11. It's a longer section, but you're going to have a longer time to read it if you're reading along with us. Yes, because the next two weeks, we will actually be out of town. And so we will not be recording any book club podcast. But don't worry. We have recorded some podcasts and set them aside for you, so you will have things to listen to during our absence. Both of those episodes will be on the trade paperbacks, numbers volumes two and volume three, for Paper Girls. So that'll give you something that you can listen to, and then when we get back for episode 48, we'll be back into our book club when we get back uh, from our vacation. So again, episode 48 will be chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11 of Red Seas Under Red Skies. And it's a pretty exciting chunk of book. So I, I'm excited for you to read that as well. And you can be reading that at the beach while we're there. It's a nice, meaty chunk of plot. Sweet. It's like a nice tenderloin. Good. We should barbecue it. Some pineapple and plantain. So our spoiler policy is that I have read these books. Chad has not. We are not going to spoil anything on this episode past chapter seven of Red Seas Under Red Skies. You got it. And we're going because we like to keep Chad's predictions fresh and hilarious. I'm excited for this particular episode's predictions. This has really been the first episode of any of the Gentleman Bastards where I feel like I could start to get a little tinfoily. There's a little mystery going on and it does deepen as the book goes on. So I, I'm excited. I'm excited to get a little tinfoily. So let's jump in. This episode, the first thing we're going to talk about is The Last Reminiscence and it's called By Their Own Rope. You're shaking your head. What did you think of it? 
Seemed a long way to go. With with the rope? I didn't mean that literally, but you could take it that way. It, it was definitely not my favorite. My first thought is Sabatha must have given some gruesome hand jobs. <laughs> not what I thought, which is weird because usually I'm the one that thinks things like You're the first one to go there. <laughs> well, listen, she would... Be up there with her shirt, no bra, swinging from the ropes, no harness. She didn't even use gloves. She had man hands. She clearly had man hands. She had some strong ass man hands. Not that hands. men don't give good hand jobs. I'm, you know. I mean, I'm sure some men do. I'm just thinking. We're saying she had a lot of calluses. Saying there's gonna be a lot of rope burn on you, Johnson. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so. Plot-wise, what happens here, that is I don't not covered in the book. Implied, but not covered. Uh, that's the only thing that Sabbath's sticks in my head. Sabbath's handjob prowess is implied, but not directly addressed in this chapter. Well, listen, if she's not going to show up to defend herself... What are you going to do? Then I'm going to take certain liberties. <laughs> so, Jean and Locke are practicing cliff climbing... It has something to do with their scheme. We don't know quite sure. I assume at some point their scheme is going to involve jumping off the sin spire. Yeah, uh-huh. That seems pretty obvious. But they're practicing jumping off of a cliff using this climbing harness. Why, why are you looking at me like that? Because you would know if they jump off the sin spire. I'm pretending like I don't know. I'm compartmentalizing my knowledge. Okay, all right, cool. I can roll with that. I'm really good at that. You can roll with that. You I know. I know compartmentalization quite well. <laughs> so Jean and Locke are practicing cliff climbing. They're rappelling. They're rappelling. Yeah. Is that mm-hmm. if you want to be fancy and use, you know, proper words and all, they're rappelling. Um, <laughs> jumping off a cliff. And they basically get waylaid by a bungling highwayman. He's not they're, very competent. He's really incompetent. They're they're dangling off here. They're kind of just joking around. And they actually are talking about Sabbath. And it's the first time we've seen Locke talk about her voluntarily. And they, um, they're talking about how she used to love to climb. And they do mention. So here's one thing that I really love. I love Hand that. Jobs. That's for the other podcast. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't assume. <laughs> <laughs> All the times in this book that it talks about women wearing breeches, okay? Mm-hmm. But it's not like a big freaking deal. It's not like, oh, she wore breeches. She's wearing pants. She's one of those. You know, like I I hate it when a fantasy novel gets in, gets that like Min Farshaw kind of character that it's like you know she's really special because she's wearing pants riding pants in pants <laughs> striding along that's what makes a strong female character right she has to wear pants i'm gonna i'm gonna write a novel and all my strong female characters are gonna have shoulder pads <laughs> you're gonna bring back shoulder pads yeah you'd like Zelazny. <laughs> a lot of shoulder pads being rocked. I bet I bet Zelaz, and he seems like the kind of guy who would rock shoulder pads. <laughs> you think I'm joking? No, actually, a lot of the women in that book wear shoulder pads. It's described. Wow. Yeah. All right. Anyway, sorry. Total divergence there. Anyway, I really like that. In this book, 
women are described as being fighters. They're being sailors. They're walking around in pants. No one's losing their goddamn minds. Nope. Because a chick's wearing pants. So good job, Scott Lynch. It is. It is. So anyway, they talk a little bit about Sabatha. She used to love to climb up buildings in her pants with no gloves. See, I was so caught up in thinking about, you know, the gender equality implications of that little passage. And I missed the part about what they don't tell you, though, is that they still don't get pockets. Shh. Don't ruin this for me. (laughs) Those women all have pockets. Okay. Where are they going to put all their knives? That's true. They got a lot of knives. True. I mean, they're not going to be able to fit their giant man hands inside of the pockets. (laughs) At least not Sabatha. So mid-conversation about mad, lovely Sabatha, they get interrupted by this bungling thief, and it's kind of a hilarious encounter. Uh, They have some good insults thrown back and forth, and he's basically like, okay, um, I'm going to kill you now. Or come up and I'm going to kill you, basically. Really, really bad at cutting rope. Yeah. (laughs) It takes him a long time to try and cut rope. Like, historically bad. With a hatchet. And he's got a hatchet. Like, I get that cutting rope with a hatchet's not, like, it's not super easy. But they talked for, like, 15 minutes. I mean, it wasn't that long. But way longer than it should have taken him to cut but anyway well yeah he's the the worst high woman under the sun clearly he would have to take off his shoes and breeches to count to 21 mm-hmm. and basically they managed to trick him into sticking his head out over the cliff and <laughs> throw a knife at his head yeah which knocks him off the cliff three stooges style he falls off he's dangling there well he lands basically in Locke's lap Right, so Locke sort of, yeah, he lands on Locke. They're both yeah. hanging off the same rope, the same rope that the highwaymen had been mm-hmm. hacking at with a hatchet a minute before. And then they spend another 17 pages before they finally get to the top of the cliff. So here's what I picked up on this time through. Okay. They talk, and they start talking about the gods. And when the highwayman was still on top of the cliff, mm-hmm. they told him, hey, you know, we're actually uh, brothers of a sort because you're a thief we're thieves we all serve the 13th god and he says i'm not a heretic now i'm really gonna have to kill you because that's that's like a big deal you can't go talking about the 13th i mean god. i'll steal your shit but i'll god, kill you but but god forbid i'm not gonna I'm not gonna blasphemy. blaspheme that's crazy but again it goes back to the gods must and their vengeance must be quite real to these people. To these people. They take it very seriously. So seriously. And this is what I, why I think this chapter is important. That when Locke is now back in control, he saves this man's life. Not because he wants to or because he's in any way has a reason not to. It's a mandate of the Crooked Warden. But the Crooked Warden, we learn in a little flashback earlier, has two mandates. And one is that thieves prosper. And then the other is that the rich remember. Mm-hmm. So that means if there's a brother thief... You help him. Yeah. And here's a brother thief who didn't really know about the unnamed 13th. And Locke feels it's his duty to do it. So we, for me, that it, gospel, yo. it shows how important and how seriously Locke actually takes this. Oh, yeah. You know, it's easy to kind of think that maybe these guys just don't think the gods are real. Because a, a lot of times we would see a modern day thief kind of with a similar approach um, doing so because he did not think the gods were real. 
Hmm. But yeah. mm-hmm. they do, and they, they're they able to do what they do around the other gods because they follow the mandates of the 13th. And Locke says, you know, I, I haven't really been doing such a good job being his servant, so I'm going to do right by him in this situation, and I'm going to save your life, and mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you about him. So that I think that's why, and this comes to play a little bit later in the book. Oh. I mean, what? <laughs> I mean, this was my take, yeah. was that... I mean, what we learn is we learn that Locke is willing to, again, take care of the thieves and that he is a person who cares about unfortunate people. So we, But I sort of feel like we already knew that, you know? The other thing we learn is that the job on the Sinspire is going to involve rappelling down. Goodness knows Scott Lynch doesn't have a problem with exposition. He could have put some rope in the background somewhere or talked... And we could have figured that out that other way. The the thing that does make sense to me, though, is that while we've seen several instances where Locke has cared about poor people getting humiliated at the, I can't remember the that island. Salon Corbeau. Yeah, Salon Corbeau. And while we've seen Locke, you know, pour out one for his dead homie who got stung by wasps on steroids, it's, it's a whole different thing to do what he did for somebody who just tried to kill him. Right. So, you know, that's where I feel like the important part of it is, but it just seems like a long way to go. I don't disagree with you, but that, yeah, that's my takeaway on this chapter. Yeah, I mean, we've had definitely had, um, there's more criticism of this book than hit, than the previous book. And I'm going to get into more about that later, but yeah. there is a lot more exposition Especially in this section. In this section, especially. You know, for me, the reminiscences really dragged on in this book. And I'm kind of glad this was the last one. But on a reread, on another reread, and reading a little more slowly, I'm seeing that Locke's character is very slowly building up toward kind of a change. Well, you know? Yeah. The, so the other thing that crosses my mind, too, is what they're going out to do. What Stragos has sent them to do is to essentially go be pirates and start a war. It just seems to me that we're spending a lot of time talking about Locke and his moral compass and what he doesn't want to happen to poor people who are out of control, people who are sort of at the whims of the rich and the powerful. Well, what in society is more of an expression of people who are powerless suffering at the whims of the people who are rich and powerful more than war. So why would these two want to go out and participate in starting a war? I can't imagine a scenario where they would. So I think they're going to do everything they can to fight against actually making the job successful while all the while having this you know, life or death poison scenario that they've got to wrestle with. See, I disagree that Locke and Jean care about a war starting or not. I don't see their actions as portraying necessarily compassion toward the poor and the powerless. I would say a desire to see the rich not completely be able to run over the poor. You know, Locke saw all sorts of rich and poor, out of balance of power, 
in Camor. It didn't affect him as much as it did in Salon Corbeau, but that was just kind of an over the top. Yeah. You don't, he's not out there. He's not a priest of Paralandro. He's not giving money to the poor. He's not a Robin Hood character. Mm. You know, I think he doesn't want Stragos's plan to succeed because he hates Stragos. Like not at any point in the book has he had any qualms about a war breaking out or, or concern about what that's going to mean for the people. Mm. I think his conscience is broadening a little bit more outside of just the world of thieves and wanting thieves to prosper. Mm-hmm. And he is starting to show a little bit more compassion to those outside of his chosen congregation for lack of a better word yeah you know i think he takes his duties as a priest of the thieves very seriously and he sees those as his responsibility we are seeing him like be a little bit more compassionate outside of that but i don't see him being really concerned about what would happen if a war broke out to the people of of this area of the world so strike that prediction oh sorry (laughs) but i think it's interesting because we talk a lot about their moral compass. And that's one of the main themes of this book Mm -hmm. and different kinds of morality. And in Locke, we're seeing, we're just exploring something different. It's not necessarily good means you're compassionate to everyone and bad means you're, you're not. Um, Locke is definitely out for himself and for his chosen gang. He puts them first Mm -hmm. and then following the mandates of his God is second and I think helping other thieves prosper, that's one of the mandates of his God. And he does that because his adoptive father trained him to do that. That's what I see. Awesome. But I don't see him as like a selfless or altruistic character. So chapter six is called A Balance of Trades. And it starts off with Locke and Jean eating pickled shark for breakfast. Gross. Mm. And trying to figure out who wants them dead. I actually thought that was a yum, probably a yummy breakfast. Pickled shark. So it's pickled shark and little brown fish and orange juice, and black bread and butter. I can't do fish for breakfast. Oh, why not? I mean, I need a cake shaped like me for breakfast. <laughs> now I think that's gross. <laughs> One shaped like Jean, anyway. <laughs> Um, one funny quote that I wrote down was between the people following us and the people hunting us, we've become the city's principal means of employment. (laughs) So that reminds me, we never really got into or speculated about who it was who sent the assassins. We were so caught up in other, in other topics. We just never really got around to. So what were your thoughts on that? So, I mean, that's, that was my question to you. I mean, who do you think it was? I've read the book. I can't compartmentalize that well. Mm, Gotcha. Okay. All right. So I went through a little exercise. So I think about, you know, I run through the list of who could it be. Okay. So Requin, Stragos, I don't, doesn't seem to me like it would be either of them because it seems like if they wanted to kill them, they could, unless it was a false flag. Hmm. Right. Doesn't seem to me, that seems far-fetched. Bonds, Magi, why would they send assassins? They could do it themselves. The Duke, the Spider, from Camor, it uh, seems to me that as long as the as long as these guys are out of Camor, they wouldn't really care. So I don't I don't see them necessarily being overly concerned about it. Some long lost relative of the Grey King or Kappa Barsavi, uh, to our knowledge, they're all dead. Barsavi doesn't make sense because, no, I mean, it wasn't known that 
they were really against Barsavi. So if there's some unknown relative of the Grey King, eh, maybe. The actual real merchants who are ten- sending out uh, Ostershell and Brandy, I don't, but I don't know. I don't see. <clears throat> seems unlikely. Uh, Landreval, who is mentioned in the chapter, maybe. That seems like it could be. Solendry? Could Solendry really want him dead but be going against Requin? Eh, maybe. But I have a theory. My theory is that it was Moraine. That's a good theory. Moraine's kind of shady. So we'll we'll talk more about that at the end. It ties into my master tinfoil. Oh, I like it when you have a master tinfoil. I do. I'm excited so, about this one. Moraine shows up as they're finishing breakfast. She pulls some like cloak and carriage, you know, magic to get them uh, into a boat, basically without being followed. Well, so he, so this is so this was interesting to me. So the way that conversation goes, they're eating their pickled shark, which I think probably wouldn't be terrible. And, uh, you know, and they're like, maybe if we could, because they're going through their own list, right? And they're like, well, maybe if we could figure out who doesn't want a summons, but who actually wants us dead, dead. And that's right when Moraine walks up. Ooh, yeah, that's a good point. Like, she interrupts them. Yeah. In that thought. That's a good point. You know what she's wearing? A waitress outfit? Pants. Ah, you can't trust a bitch wearing pants. I'm just saying. (laughs) She probably had pockets, too. Probably. Next thing you know, they're going to teach her how to read and vote. (laughs) We're getting too big for our britches, eh? (laughs) So, Moraine gets them into a boat, takes them to meet a gentleman named Caldris. Caldris, yes. He is a prime target for a heart attack. He's smoking a big pack of cool cigarettes. <laughs> he eats 14 eggs a day, likes to golf during thunderstorms. <laughs> and it's going to be Caldris's job to teach them how to not make a total ass of themselves and how to pretend how to sail. He tells them he would need five years to turn them into sailors, 15 years to turn them into Proper officers. naval officers, yeah. they have one month. So can we agree that larboard is a stupid word? I don't know. I kind of can't stop saying larboard. <laughs> larboard? Helmily. That too. Larboard. Say it, try it in a British accent. Larboard. Larboard. See? I, I actually know way more you, about it? that word than I'd ever wanted to. About larboard? Yeah. Okay, lay it so, on me. Oh, I grew up around water and boats and sailing and mm-hmm. things of that nature. So this is all very familiar to me. And except for the term larboard, you know, fore, aft, starboard mm-hmm. port, you know, it's all custom. I'm like, starboard, larboard, that makes zero sense. You're going to try to shout over the wind to somebody. No, I said larboard, not starboard. Like, I'm like, this is stupid. It doesn't make sense. So I had to look up and see if it was a real thing. I mm-hmm. suspected that it was. Mm-hmm. And it was. So starboard means uh, steering side. Mm-hmm. And larboard means the side that they board the larder. Mm. So that's the side that goes to port. Mm. But some genius in the 17th century said, larboard and starboard sound way too much alike. Let's just start using port. Mm-hmm. which was smart. 
So yeah, but it comes from the the side that they load the larder, the stuff, all the stuff for the boat. Drop some knowledge there. Every once in a while. It's cute. So, I like it. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's cute when you drop knowledge. Thank you. Thank you. So they go, they meet this guy, Caldris. His job is to, again, teach them how to fake their way through sailing. But the plan is that he is going to be the actual captain, sailmaster. He's only going to be pretending to take orders from Locke. And he's just going to teach them enough so that they don't make total asses of themselves. But as he says... All gods is my witness. I suspect this is going to end in screaming and drowning. I, I still do. So the, I mean, this is a very long chapter for them to convince us that these two knuckleheads do not know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They're so, going to drown fast as a one copper fuck in a one whore cat house. <laughs> Thank you for capturing the best line. That was the best line. That was the best line. <laughs> So it's, you know, um, this was a, this was the part that to me sort of drug on. I have thoughts about that later, but I'm going to put all my thoughts about the goodness or badness. The goodness or badness thoughts we save to the end. We'll save that a little bit later. All right. Okay. All right. Sounds good. But so one thing I took from this section candidate for a heart attack. It's almost like you know what's coming. Um, one thing I took from this section, and I'm I'm starting to really pick out when they talk about the gods and their mandates. We're seeing that a lot more. Mm-hmm. So we see a bit of what it takes to satisfy Iono, the god of the sea. You need bloody knives, bloody bread, female officers, and cats. You need lots of pussy. <laughs> so much pussy. And also female officers. <laughs> Which is kind of cool. Again, we're talking about the the equitable gender roles in this mm-hmm. world. And like, that's kind of a cool thing. You know, it's a nice play on, isn't it sort of a standard old school nautical thing that women were bad luck aboard a ship? Yes, correct. So I think that's kind of cool that in this world, women are seen as good luck and not just having like a token woman, but a female officer. Yeah. Those bitches get pockets. Well, they make better officers. <laughs> and you need a lot of cats for some reason. I mean, I guess it makes lot, sense. You get a lot of mice. You get a lot of mice, so you so, would want yeah, yeah, yeah. the cats the, yeah. aboard. Yeah, the cat the cat thing is a legit historical thing. We also see that sailors, especially, and this is a, a world of highly superstitious people, and the sailors just seem to be more than cut above. Yeah. The superstition is strong with them. Yes, also true to life. That's, yeah, so that's probably important. In the next section, we see Locke heading to the Sin Spire to deliver the chairs for whatever purpose that they're going to... I have a theory about that. Okay, can't wait to hear it. We also find out that Salandri used to be an eye, an eye of that's the Archon. That's right, yeah. So that's kind of a... I really can't believe that Requin is falling for, for Locke's bullshit. You know, I, for me, it's believable because it seems to me that Locke has really kind of got a lock on Requin. He has spent a long time studying him and practicing talking to him. One thing that I don't think we talked about in the Salon Corbeau reminiscence was 
there's just kind of a throwaway scene where Locke is waiting around for something. He's standing in a mirror and he's kind of talking to himself, kind of practicing a card trick idly. Mm-hmm. But I he's remember, yeah. mm-hmm. the the phrase he's the he's sort of talking to himself, but the words he uses are the exact words he uses in Requin's office that he's like speaking to him. So every word that he has spoken to him up till now has been planned for years, mm. practiced for years. So he has been spending years thinking about Requin, thinking about how to get inside of his head and how to manipulate him. So showing up with this suite of chairs that he knows is his weakness and is going to be a distraction to him, I I think that that probably had something to do with it. And he's also able to play right into Requin's fear and animosity toward the Archon. So he's pretty eager for an in there. And I think he's just playing right into what he wants to believe. I'll buy it. So Requin does like talk pretty hard at him. He says, you should make a list of people it is safe to antagonize <laughs> and my name will not appear on it. <laughs> Solandri still isn't, Solandri's not buying it. No, which is why I thought the idea of her sending assassins, like that Requin doesn't want him dead, but her her being like, okay, I'm just going to quietly send some assassins because I think my lover is falling for something stupid. And he is. Yeah, and he is, yeah. So that crossed my mind as a possibility. I don't think that's what it is, but... So another line that I picked out was once he... It kind of clicks for Locke. He goes in there just like, you know what? I'm just gonna start talking and see what comes out. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, um, we're being sent away to find, find a locksmith. Yeah. For- so he's looking around the room. He's like, so I'm going to find there's a pen. Vade- <laughs> looking for a man called pen. <laughs> You've heard of pen. Vadesk. He he's really good at business strip chair. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that's exactly what it's like. <laughs> but then he says, once a big lie is out in the world, it seemed to grow on its own and needed little tending. So once the lie clicks for him, he's able to sell it a little better. Yeah. So he tells Requin that Stragos wants them to fly, go fly, to sail to the Ghostwind Islands where there is supposedly a prodigy locksmith that will help get into Requin's vault. And Requin's like, okay, but you're going to bring him to me first, right? course of course i am just sweetening the pot now <laughs> and requin you know orders locked not to kill jean and and thinks that and, and locks like oh man really you know he so requin still really feels in control of this situation mm, mm-hmm. he should and he should no he shouldn't yeah he should so well requin has an ace in his hand that Locke doesn't know about really mm-hmm he does. What is that? I'll tell you later. Okay. So back to John. It's Jean. a big card. I'll tell you later. Okay. I'll show you my big card later. <laughs> That's the other podcast. I oh, know. sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so for the next couple of sections, Jean and Locke, you know, do see stuff. They like, at one point Locke says, they're compl- they're drinking. They're complaining about the sailor's lingo. And Locke says, "If if anyone tells me to squiggle fuck the right wise cock squatter with a starboard jib one more time, <laughs> and that's what it all sounds like. It does. It really. We does. have about three sections, three or four sections of them just 
learning. And I took nary a note. And it's I kind of was like, uh, more C stuff. I literally wrote blah, blah, blah in this part because <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I, I, I did read it all, but usually when I get to this part, I just kind of flip pages because I'm like, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of C stuff. Helmily, starboard, larboard. <laughs> but when we get over to section 10 of this chapter, there's an interesting scene where Locke and John are drinking in a bar and the city watch walks in or oh, five yeah, or six of about, them. Yeah, I forgot about that. And this is a Navy bar, as mm-hmm. you know. There tend to be bars with... Navy and Army don't get along. They, they play don't... a giant game every year. They Exactly. So the City Watch, who are controlled by the Priori, come in, and the Navy guys are all in this bar, and they're like, get out of here, you jarheads. And basically, there's tension. And the City Watch, who are vastly outnumbered, they're like, oh, sorry, here, uh, you know, beer's on us for everyone. And they mm-hmm. drop a purse and they leave, and free beer starts going around and eventually comes to Jean and Locke, and they're not in the mood for beer. They give it to their beers to a pants-wearing, tattooed female dock worker. That's right. Hala, at the next table, she drinks it, dies of poison. Blah, blah, blah. Dun, dun, dun. a lot of poison going around. That's in this right. Book. Yeah. Very convenient plot device. And, and suddenly the, the red-shirt young barkeep is nowhere to be found. Ah. So, obviously, things are heating up, assassination-wise. Locke's a little freaked out. And they realize at this point that whoever's behind these attacks has got to be either someone on the priori or someone very close to them because that this was not an accidental encounter and they must be able to control the city watch to some extent. Yeah. So at that point, they're like, oh, hell, we need to get out of Dodge. So they go decide to hole up with Stragos until it's time for them to leave. I forgot about that. It kind of puts a hole in my theory. I don't care. So that's not the way tinfoil works. You can put hole in tinfoil. You can. And it still works. You just pinch it closed. That's right. Just pinch that sucker closed. Forget that that happened. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, that part was kind of blah too. The next section for me was kind of fun because we see Jean Locke and Caldras kind of having a little dress rehearsal and we see Locke finally starting to enjoy pretending to be a, a naval captain. Yeah, that part was a little fun. I did enjoy that part. Imaginary crewmen. Imaginary you, sailors was good. Yeah. Stop sh- fucking off, you. <laughs> so you could see them kind of start to having a little bit of fun and that was kind of cool. But on the whole, I'm going to put all my thoughts later. Chapter 7? So, chapter 7 is called Casting Loose. <sighs> and there's a prison break, yo. But it's better than that stupid Fox television show. Oh, I never watched that. Because you're a right-thinking American. That show was dumb. I'm sure it was. I'm putting it out there now. I have strong opinions about how stupid that show Really? Was. Yeah, I do. Interesting. I mean, you, did you ever watch it? No. Oh. Okay. I don't have to watch shows to know they're stupid. That's true. You don't. You just pinch that hole closed. <laughs> Listen, I've never watched an episode of NCIS either. No, you're right. That show's stupid. And I know it's stupid. Yeah. So, all right, chapter seven. So, yeah, in this one, we have a prison break. So, this is another one of those chapters where from part, you know, odd-numbered parts 
are in one time and even numbered parts. We go back a few hours or days. And basically what's happening is that Stragos is telling them, hey, there's this island. It's got a prison. On this prison, you know, it's just nothing but naval, you know, prisoners, sailors, and people that we've captured. It's my own private prison. And uh, I've conveniently left it lightly guarded. Oh, and by the way, I've set up all this paperwork for this mysterious captain who is going to betray me. And uh, and then he's like, and I mean you. And we're all like, yes, we we're reading the same yeah, fucking book. Yeah, we got that. We, <laughs> we get it, you know. You know, but the only thing I want you to do is to promise me that you won't cause any permanent harm to any of the guards. Okay, no problem. They go in, they break out the prisoners. And these prisoners... These are a good bunch of guys. Nice people. Super nice. First thing they say is, boy, we'd really love to fuck us a young, handsome captain. Yeah, they're not happy. Like, come in here so we can gang rape you. They're dissatisfied with their life. Is the very first thing we hear from these guys. And I'm like, wow, nice, nice first introduction. So we find out through Stragos's exposition that what he's done to set this up and, and Locke's going to need a crew for his ship. Yeah. And he wants Locke to impersonate a, a disgruntled officer who's turning his coat and becoming a pirate. Mm-hmm. And he selected a crew and had them all, all of these men moved into the worst part of the prison and has basically had them like low key tortured for yeah. weeks or months. They've been doused with water when they're trying to sleep. They've been deprived meals. They really have just been made absolutely miserable. Yeah. And given no reason to love Stragos and every reason to want to turn pirate as well. Yeah. So he's absolutely. softened them up. So it's not hard for Locke to go down there and talk them into no, uh-huh. swearing their loyalty and pretty much it's it seems pretty smooth sailing. Yep. So when they're on the boat, and they're out there with Stragos, who's kind of, you know, getting ready to start, you know, dropping them off. Moraine is there, and she's sitting in the bow. And I read th- I read this particular sentence. It says, Moraine sat in the bow. Locke wondered if she was ever comfortable anywhere else. And at first I thought maybe this was some allusion to... We don't know anything about Moraine. We don't know where she's from. We don't know who you know, what her goals are. I thought, is this a hint that she's from some sort of seafaring culture? She worships the god Iono, like something along those lines. And then when I read it again, I realized, no, 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 no. What he means is she's comfortable when she's in charge. She likes being on top. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's not about, it's nothing to do with boats. Right. It's about, it's about being the, um, the person calling the shots. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. And I think it's interesting to see Stragos and how strongly he emphasized wanting to leave the guards alive. Mm-hmm. And for me, this is where I, I keep comparing him to Stannis and especially show Stannis over book Stannis. But this is where the Stannis like really came, comes out for me. You know, this is a guy who he wants to be in charge. And yeah. so he's made up this cockamamie reason why it's necessary for the world for him to be in charge. Yeah. It's the right thing to do for everyone. 
And he's the only one. He's the only one that can help everyone. That's right. So, but it's just an excuse. And he gets deeper and deeper into convincing himself that what he's doing is the honorable thing, the only thing. But he keeps digging himself lower and lower, you know, but he's, but he'll cling to one or two things that, that are still honorable that can, so that he can hold on to this illusion that what he's doing is the right thing. So he'll yeah. poison Caldrus, yeah. who hasn't done anything wrong and has served him loyally. And it, yeah, it appears to have some loyalty. And is getting ready to retire from his service. But but he won't let his guards, but don't harm my guards. Because yeah. my honor demands that these people can't be harmed. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So to me, that's just a very kind of Stannis thing to do. Yeah, and I feel like Caldrus being poisoned... I mean, at first I thought I didn't think much of it, but the more I think about it, the more I think he's being put out there for us as an example of just the way Stragos behaves and how he performs. But I also think it points to another part of my tinfoil theory that okay. I, can't, I can't wait to talk about later. It's wrong, but I'm going to have a hell of a time talking about it and laying down that tinfoil. Awesome. It's going to be fun for me. So Stragos has made a big deal about his guards not being harmed, his honor demands that these loyal soldiers are not going to take any harm because of mm -hmm. what he's doing. So as soon as Locke and Jean roll up out of there, somebody sneaks up out of the shadows who's been waiting patiently, and it's Moraine, and she kills them all. Damn. And what she says... It's cold. Mm -hmm, or, or thinks is that Locke and Jean are men who are better off dead if they couldn't be put to use on behalf of the interests that she serves. Right. She's seeing Locke and Jean now as a threat mm -hmm. if they stay in the hands of the Archon. She's actually starting to believe that they're going to be able to accomplish the task that he set for them, which is okay because it's it's a joint it's something that her employers or her interests want as well. But she doesn't want the Archon to be able to then use them in the future because she doesn't necessarily know what the Archon's going to want. So she decides she's got to sabotage them. The other, thing she, the other thing is that she seems to be relieved that she was killing the guards while they were drugged because she didn't seem to want to cause any right. more unnecessary pain than she would have to. She's not a bad person. <laughs> no, she's a bad person. Let's, no, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's I know, like I know. <laughs> let's call it let's call it what it is. <laughs> she's she's a bad person. So, but it's interesting to me because she is somebody who is uh, appears to be trained as an assassin. She is extremely skilled at it. She's used to being in charge, but she doesn't actually like killing. Or at least, you know, in her inner dialogue, she doesn't seem to like the right. she's not. She doesn't have a ghoulish love of killing. She yeah. doesn't like it. Yeah. So she's serving some greater purpose. And whatever that greater purpose is that she's identified with is somebody that Stragos is either intimidated, intimidated by or at least some degree respectful of. So again, it's some greater power that she represents. Don't really know who that is yet, right. but I'm just trying to put the elements out there so I can kind of say this is what we know about this mysterious person. Yeah. This is my, this is my favorite character in the book so far. 
She is very interesting. And all And all mysterious. Yeah. yeah. So toward the end of the chapter, we see the new crew of the Red Messenger escape. Things are going swimmingly. Uh, at this point, I think we're about, about at the end of the chapter. Oh, but no. We're about halfway through the then there's chapter. more and more and more. There's so much to this. It's a long goddamn chapter. It's a chapter. long chapter. So we go back and the, the crew escapes. Caldras spends a little bit of time telling Locke how fucking creepy the Sea of Brass is. Mm-hmm. Apparently it's haunted and there's lots of weird ghost paranormal fish? things. There are ghost fish. There are cities that you can see under the water. So it's interesting because we've talked about the touches of the Eldrin race and how it mm-hmm. inspires superstition. And it seems there are some possible lingering remnants of their power. It's more present in the ocean. And he tells Locke about an island that had... 300 families living on it who all disappeared overnight. Something came for them, didn't leave bodies. Nobody knows what happened to them. Yeah. So there's some really creepy stuff. So that kind of sets up the tension for and makes you understand why the sailors have these very strong superstitions and why following the mandates of Iono is crucial when you're in his domain right before it's revealed that Locke... He forgot to bring the fucking cats. Forgot the cats. We also, we found out earlier that the the women officers who were supposed to be rescued as well, somehow all got sick. There were four of them. They all got the same fever. They They had to be moved to the mainland. And there's no women. And now there's no cats aboard. And it's, you know, the one of the first... The, the first mate, not the first mate, but probably the second mate that they appoint, his name is Jabril. Mm-hmm. Jabril. I thought it was Jabril. Oh, well, I like that. Jabril. Mm-hmm. Let's call him Jabril. Mm-hmm. So Jabril is the first to kind of notice and be like, oh, Jabril hey. Jabril jabroni? Jabril. He is kind of a jabroni, isn't he? A little bit. <laughs> He's like, hey, man. Damnedest, have you seen any cats? Damnedest thing. <laughs> I haven't seen any cats. And Locke's like, Shit. He forgot the cats. That's when Caldras comes up to him and says, you know, we've left out milk. We've left out meat. I get the sinking suspicion that you forgot the fucking cats. <laughs> you land-loving piece of shit. <laughs> Their souls are in peril. There are no cats. And he said, you know what? Next ship we see, we need to chase them so that we can take their freaking cats. No matter what. <laughs> because said, if we don't find some fucking cats, your ass is going to be hanging from a yard arm. Right. So so I like the way the tension builds in this. You know, we, we learn about why the soldiers are superstitious. The Sea of Brass is creepy. Iono is apparently hella strict with following his mandates. And now we have no cats. We have no women. There's a storm coming up that they're getting ready to have to sail through. They can't go around it. And... Right as all this starts coming down. Hey, would you hand me my uh, pack of cools over there? I just need to light up one more fiberglass cigarette. I, uh, I, uh, 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 is my. (sighs) So Caldras dies of a heart attack. Hey, how about that? So, yes, so Caldras dies of a heart attack, but it's one of those scenarios where you can start to see the hints that something is wrong beforehand. He's 
appearing like he's not getting sleep. All these things are starting to happen. And one of the things that Strago said is that with this poison, you won't know that a lot is going wrong, but when it starts to happen, it'll happen very, very quickly. And so it appears that that is what we are seeing here with Stragos. Of course, it happens right before they're about to go through this major storm, leaving them in a situation where Jean and Locke have to figure this out for themselves and actually be real sea captains with a crew that is gonna is starting to get skeptical of them, and that's where we end the chapter. So Scott Lynch is so good at building tension and building drama, and he does that really well here in this section. Yeah, agreed. You know, from... Again, we just kind of said all of this, but the superstition and then the cats and then the storm and then Caldress is basically like, we're totally fucked. And and Jean and Locke are talking and Jean is saying like, it's going to be okay because Caldress knows what he's doing. We'll get through the storm. We'll get through this. And then Caldress stumbles through the door and just dies in front and of And no them. more Caldress. And then that's it. No more Caldress. Yeah. And it just really leads up to this big, oh shit moment where you're like, oh shit. They're fucked. How? They're fucked. They are in trouble. <laughs> and that's where we ended this section. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. <sighs> so that was a pretty uh that was a pretty powerful section. So give us your theories now. Let's see. I want to make sure I didn't forget anything here. Okay. So I have a couple of predictions before I get into my big tinfoil. Okay. There okay. So the first one is I think I think that Locke learned something from the Grey King, which is where the Grey King put these weird pyramids in Duke Nicovanti's tower that he was going to use filled with uh, wraithstone. I think that the chairs are going to serve a similar function for Jean and Locke. And... The person who designed or who built the chairs built them with a lighter than usual wood and also put there was some sort of device in the chairs. Now, I say in the chairs because if it was it wasn't made clear in that initial reminiscence. But when Requin sees the chairs, there's nothing obvious that is out of the norm. There's no weird device stuck to them or anything. They look like replicas, which tells me that whatever device or design or whatever it was that they put in these chairs was built inside the chairs. So that means it's meant to contain something and meant to be cracked open. So it's some sort of poison or airborne mist or something along those lines, uh, a shit ton of uh, steroid-ridden wasps, I, I don't know. But there's something inside of that, and it's meant to be broken as a part of their plan to escape the Sin Spire. So, well, let me just point to you, because this has already been stated in the book, but it's easy to miss that ooh. when Locke was talking to the chairmaker and trying to explain the unusual design, mm-hmm. he told him that his master was deathly and irrationally afraid of fire. Hmm. Okay. And he said, so you can understand now why this would be comforting to him. 
Hmm. Okay. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. I couldn't smoke it if it's made of water. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So something to ponder. All right. Next one. Requin wants Jerome DeFerra alive. That's because he's already been trying to work Jean against Locke. And Jean is not telling Locke. Ooh, okay. And that's why Jean, this goes back to the very opening scene, that Jean's like, no, they're, they're talking sense. That's our first hint, is that Requin's like, no, I want him alive. Because otherwise, why would he fucking care? There's no, there's no reason for him to do it other than two reasons. One, this. Two, just as a weird fucking power trip against Locke. Which, this guy's kind of a prick. I could see, I could see that. Mm-hmm. But I think that this is the beginning of him trying to work Jean. All right. And it's telling that, you know, we're still talking about whether or not Jean trusts Locke mm. in all these different stages. So, and my theory is that he doesn't. Okay, so the next one. This is my big tinfoil theory. A couple of different things, uh, a couple of different theories in in this big tinfoil theory. My big master theory around Moraine, right? Okay. So, Stragos likes to poison motherfuckers. Yes, he does. Seems to like to do it on a whim, right? And Caldras is our example of this. So Caldras, who served him loyally, seems to be loyal. Fuck that guy. We're going to poison him anyway. Right? So that tells me that not only did Stragos poison Caldras, we know that, he poisoned Moraine too. Oh. So he poisoned Moraine. Moraine, who is used to being in charge, doesn't like this. And that's why she's willing to risk sabotaging his plans. All right. Even if it even if it kind of goes in the favor of her employer, she's still willing to take that risk, okay? So she's trying to get whatever control she can. She did not give Caldras the antidote. And that's why she died because she wants Jean and Locke to die on the water. But she needs to appear to remain to uh, to be loyal to Stragos. So she's the person who hired the assassins to kill Jean and Locke. That's how the ones who um, she that she shot with a crossbow bolt. That's why she knew when to show up, where to show up, and that she had a poison knife in her hand because it was all just a false flag operation. Oh my goodness. For her, so that she could look dedicated to Stragos out in public, but attempt to kill them behind his back. All right. That bitch is crazy. Mm-hmm. She's my favorite character in the whole series so far. <laughs> I like it. So that's my tinfoil. I like it. There's holes in it, but I don't care. I like it. It's my tinfoil. I like it. Any other theories? No. No. Uh, do we have any questions from listeners? We have a few listener interactions. There was some sort of going back and forth about how the movie Crawl was better than Dune, but I'm not going to dignify that with a response. Well, yeah. Don't need to talk about that. So Ian James Crone 
said, uh, basically, the Archon is using the same trick uh, that the president used on Snake uh, Plissken in Escape from New York. Uh, I loved that. I saw that movie like when it originally came out. Really? Yeah, I was, I was super young. young. Yeah, you were too young too, probably. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I don't, I don't remember. I never rewatched it. So, like, I just, I don't remember the details. So I have to go back and watch that movie again. You it, should definitely go back and watch that classic. movie again. It's a classic. It's a classic. He also said every man has a favorite boob. It's true. It's the left one. In my limited research, it's true. <laughs> So Nathan Hernandez says, I have been a huge, I've been on a huge pirate binge lately, and I'm not even a big fan of the pirate era in general. After reading Red Seas over Red, uh, uh, Red Seas under Red Skies, it's got me more pumped for the D&D podcast. Awesome. Yep. Uh, Adam at LFC, Adam88185, turn, had been... Turns out that he had a signed copy of Red Season or Red Skies Shut up. for years and didn't even know it. Wow. And he was looking around, you know, reading up on on things for the podcast and he was like, Hey, wait a minute. This has been signed. That's awesome. And he already has a um a signed copy of what's the next book? Re- Republic of Thieves. Republic of Thieves. Oh, I'm jelly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and then we spent a long time talking about absurdly large bees. Oh, yes. We don't need to go into that again. No, no, We all want to sleep tonight. No need for all that. So on Facebook, Catherine Stewart said, hey, thanks for letting me join. She joined the podcast group, and you should join the podcast group page on Facebook as well. Absolutely. We have fun conversations. That's right. She says, I'm binging the the past podcast. I'm up to episode 16 and enjoying them so far. Side note, Legolas is amazing and not at all a Ken doll. He is not a Ken doll. You were the one who said he was a Ken doll. I'm taking her side now. <laughs> You've just changed arbitrarily. Solidarity, sister. You can do that. You can <laughs> Wait, change your mind. Book Legolas or movie Legolas? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, you know what? That's a good. That's a good question. When she gets to episode forty-five, she can she can answer that question. <laughs> so Chris Dixon said, "I'm through chapter seven of Red Seas and the Red Skies, and I must admit." admit at this point i'm struggling to continue i'll say no more until after the next podcast to hear your take on it not looking to quit just saying now was there any more along that line because i feel like well they uh he and theo went back and forth yes a little bit kind of digging digging into it so i liked that conversation because it articulated something that i hadn't been able to up until this point and it's and I want to qualify first by saying that I love this whole series. It is definitely in my top five recent fantasy series for sure. Um, and I love Red Seas. And I think if I had read Red Seas on its own, I'd be like, wow, this is a fantastic book. Mm-hmm. But compared to Lies, I like it less. And even compared to Republic of Thieves, I like it less. Mm -hmm. And they kind of were able to articulate some things as to why. And I think, I can't remember who on that thread said this, but someone talked about the the amount of exposition and the amount of world building that goes on in this book. It really kind of drags. And it's not as necessary. You're not setting up the world. And Scott Lynch does do a lot of describing architecture, which... 
if you're like a visual spatial kind of architecture person, I think would maybe you'd be able to read that and enjoy it more. For me, I just like, I can only read about buildings so much and how the shapes of different towers and this one had that and I can't picture it in my mind very well. So compared to like, you know, a Patrick Rothfuss approach where he sort of does like a he gives you like a charcoal outline of what a cityscape is like. He might describe like one prominent building or he might describe how a building or a cityscape makes the character feel. And that that I can connect to. But Scott Lynch is describing the windows. He's describing windows. He's describing it's how I imagine some people might feel about Robert Jordan and his descriptions of people's outfits and all their hairs and all their hair. Every and stuff. one of their hairs. But like, but see, that doesn't bother me because I'm like, oh, that sounds pretty, you know, but the buildings. No, I can't get into it. And for me, if you're describing a city or a landscape and it goes on for more than a paragraph, honestly, I'm done. And so Scott Lynch does a lot of that. And their point in this thread was like he did that some in Lies of Locke Lamora, but he's setting up a world. This city is not that different. At least it doesn't seem that different from Kamor. So it it feels less necessary to kind of have all of that exposition there. I feel like it it really suffered when he got into chapter six and we started getting into the sword marina and back and forth about all the sailing and all the boats. Well, that's mine. So I have a list of three reasons why I like Red Seas under Red Skies less than Lies of Locke Lamora. Yeah. So number one is the exposition, the descriptions of landscapes and stuff. Number two is the sailing is boring. Okay. I mean, for me, it's like the Grateful Dead of sports. (laughs) Like... (laughs) Like, there's some people who are really, really into it and, like, good for them. But for the rest of the world, we're like, damn, this is boring to listen to. (laughs) That's funny. I like it. Also, like, The Grateful Dead, I pretended to like it in college because everybody else seemed to be into it. But no, it's boring. I I think that sailing is a lot like soccer in or football for the rest of the world in that fun to participate in boring as shit to watch or read about. That's a good analogy too. I don't know. I don't even, I mean, I'm like cool being on a sailboat, I guess, but I have, I have no desire to ever helm a larboard or <laughs> jig a cock mast or whatever. <laughs> You keep your mizzen on your own, mess. It doesn't do it for me. Tell Sabbath to keep her man hands off my mask. <laughs> That's a callback. So, yeah. Number two is I just find sailing boring. So, and I think a lot of us are. Yeah. But if you don't, then you'd be like, oh, yeah, this is really exciting. But for me, See, it's kind of blah, blah, blah. So I grew up on boats. Like some of my earliest memories are on boats. Mm-hmm. And we went to a sail in college, you know, like I, I've spent a lot of time on boats. Mm-hmm. So I'm, for me, it's interesting because I'm neither fascinated by them because I've lived on them, but I'm also not like, like I'm not, I'm not like, Ooh, this is super cool. It's something I know something about. It's like, it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. It, it's not, 
interesting to me because I'm not learning anything new. And I'm also not super fascinated by but like so it just doesn't it's like if the, someone was writing pages and pages of descriptions of how to drive a car exactly you'd be like okay we get it yeah ex- it, that's exactly They're what it's like car. yeah because yeah. it's already a topic i'm familiar with but it's also a mundane topic to me i'm not like i didn't i also don't like sailing for the sake of it like if i had a shit ton of money to throw away on a boat, which I would never do because they're a fucking time sink and a money hole. But if I did, and I was going to pay somebody else to maintain it, I would get a powerboat over a fucking sailboat any day. Like, like I just don't find sailing in and of itself to be all that entertaining. A boat, to me, serves a purpose. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. So for me, that's definitely reason number two of why this book just drags for me in parts. Now, I will say, though, that I'm not sure how you'd get across the sheer impossibility of the tasks set before Locke and Jean without kind of going into all there is to know about sailing. I mean, you could be like, there was there was a lot to learn about sailing and they studied really hard, you know? Uh, yeah, and I think that's why... A lot of that was was necessary. Yeah, so I won't say it wasn't necessary, but it wasn't enjoyable for me to read. Yeah. And it did make it satisfying, though, when Locke finally puts on his uniform and he's kind of running around going, Helma Larbert. I know I'm saying yeah. Helma Larbert for a lot, but I don't <laughs> remember any of the other phrases. <laughs> Cockamamie jiggy, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, so I, I get that, but again, still does not make it any more enjoyable for me to read. But the main thing I think that makes this book has made this book less enjoyable than Lies of Locke Lamora was how so not on top Locke and Jean are. Mm, you know, yeah. they kind of start out just in the shit, basically straight out of the gate getting poisoned. So all yeah. of their clever things that they manage to do are not even things they really want or goals that they want to accomplish. They're just doing them to avoid being poisoned more. And it well, makes it, it feels railroady. It does. It feels railroady. And while you had a bit of that in Lies of Locke Lamora, it was not until towards the end of the book yeah. that you were like, oh, they're in the shit, you know? Yeah. And they've already been so beaten down in the previous book. And the other thing is that the flashbacks in Lies of Locke Lamora were all about them gaining their powers, basically, building up their skill set. So it mm-hmm. was a nice counterpoint to like the ever worsening, grow, worsening yeah. clusterfuck chapters. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in the present day, they're like, you know, the Grey King's doing this, it, and then yeah. Kappa Barsavi's trying to get him to marry this, and then this one's dying. You're like, oh, man. But then you see them in the flashbacks, like, getting more and more powerful. So you're like, it, it's it gives you a break. And it also gives you a reason to think that they're going to pull it off. It does. Now, in this one, they're, like, barely straggling through. They've got this scheme that's, you can't, you don't really even know what it is they're trying to steal or it's, what. In all the reminiscences, too, they're fighting or they're drunk Locke's or, going through his emo period yeah, then he's yeah. moping around Salon Corbeau watching something depressing it there's yeah. no break from it no you're just kind of like so up to this point I, I do think the combination of those three things again if I read this book on its own not as a follow-up to what Lies of Locke Lamora was one of my favorite books yeah 
for me, it didn't hold up. I will say, though, if you are at the place I am, Republic of Thieves is worth it. I enjoyed it more. So the the thing the part about that that's interesting to me is the biggest complaint I had about this section is that I felt like Red Sea started out pretty strong, although it definitely had some downer moments. But I felt like it started out fairly strong when you got when you're in Talvarar and the Bonds Magi make their little hand puppets, and I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. There wasn't a huge exposition dump in the very beginning because, uh, you know, like you said, it was the city wasn't that different. And so I felt like, oh, we're jumping kind of right in to the story. When we get to these chapters, all of a sudden the story takes a huge left turn and you go from thinking you're in Ocean's Eleven, we're literally in a casino, going to rob a casino. And the next thing you know... You spend two, I mean, it was like 120 pages talking about the mizzen mast and why this boat doesn't have one. <laughs> Say mizzen mast again, sorry. Mizzen mast. <laughs> so you spend all this time, it's like you get this exposition dump literally in the middle of the book mm-hmm. and it completely pulls you in a very different direction. Now, I tend, my tendency as long as the book continues to be readable is to hold off judgment to see whether or not it pays off. I'm a person who I don't judge a book very harshly while I'm reading it. Not usually there are some books that I do, but generally I don't hold it very harshly while I'm reading it. But if you make me go through this big ass left turn and it doesn't pay off, I'll judge you very harshly at the end. Harder than someone who brings 40 items into the 25 item or less line at the grocery store. Way harder. And I've been known to kick those people. So, so I can kind of understand why people are upset in these chapters. It it was a lot of an exposition dump. I didn't find it. To me, it was sort of counterbalanced by the fact that I finally found something to be tinfoily about. Right. So I sort of ignored all that bullshit and just focused on what's going on with Moraine and Stragos and the poison and ignored the 14 page descriptions of, you know, the directions of the boat and why you couldn't just say the right hand side. Like, so I just sort of moved past it and gave him kind of a pass for it. But I get why people would be frustrated. I get that, too. Yeah. I will say I'll be interested to see how everyone feels after reading the next section. That we're gonna talk. And I'm excited to hear your thoughts yeah, on the next section. I really just want it all to tie together. And, and right now I'm not seeing a cohesiveness. You know, it feels like this is two kind of stories. Now I, I have confidence because I feel like Scott Lynch did a very good job in Lies of Locke Lamora of tying together some disparate stuff from beginning to end and pulling little things that, little stories that didn't seem to have a whole lot of significance other than character moments and then tying them back together. Like right. the thing, like the whole thing with uh, Jean when Locke would hold, hug people and hold people and say, I just have to hold yeah. you. And how he tied that back at the end and it was this critical thing. 
you're reading that book and you're like, okay, this is a interesting kind of little character thing, but mm, did I really need to know that, you know? And then he ties it back at the end. So I want to give him the benefit of the doubt here and say that spending months and months at sea while in the middle of a casino heist is somehow going to tie back together. Right. You know, so, but I don't know. We'll have to see. Hang it in there. Hang in there. So do you have anything else for today? I do not. Fantastic. So next episodes will be Paper Girls Trade Paperback Volume 2. And then in the next episode, Paper Girls Trade Trade Paperback Volume 3. And can I say that even if you don't think of yourself as a comic book person, which I did not for a long time, check out these books. They're really fantastic. These would be good ones for folks who are not generally comic book readers. Right. Or really, I mean, I think anything by Brian K. Vaughn I would agree. is really fantastic. Um, he's, if you're not into the whole superhero If stuff. you're not into the superhero thing, which I love superheroes, but I have trouble getting into long superhero comic series in Me that too. format. I don't know why. Brian K. Vaughn is fantastic. Um, this is his, well, his third series that I've read. So any of them. But if you want to follow along with us, pick up the Paper Girls, first three volumes, check it out. And, and then, the fourth one comes out in like a week. Oh, I'm so excited. So that'll be fun. Excited. Yeah. And then so in episode 48, we'll be back to Liza Locklamora. It'll be chapters eight through 11. That's right. Where can they find us? They can find us on our website at the Duke and Duchess podcast.com. They can find us on Twitter at the D and D podcast. That's D is in David and is in Nancy D is in David podcast. They can find us on Facebook at the Duke and Duchess and also join our Facebook podcast group page where you can chat and discuss with us. And if you like us, give us a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Google play, uh, or Intune Radio, and we love those. We always love those ratings. If you really love us, tell a friend about us. Good night, everybody. Good night. I got a piece so bad. Hello, Questers. This is Mandy, the host of Cast Request, inviting you to enjoy our podcast where we explore the rich and vibrant world of Patrick Rothfuss's best-selling fantasy series, The Kingkiller Chronicle. Soon to be adapted as a major motion picture and television show produced by the award-winning creator of Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Hungry for more content? Perhaps you will enjoy our recaps of HBO's Game of Thrones, Over the Garden Wall, animated Batman films, or our world-famous erotic fanfiction reads. Whatever you're in the mood for, if you love a good story, humor, impromptu parody songs, and thousands of pop culture references, you'll enjoy our show. You can find Cast Request on SoundCloud, iTunes, and of course, our amazing network, the Earth Station One Network at esopodcast.com.